Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. Today we are wrapping up our series uh, that we've called Wisdom, where we are looking at wisdom. Over the past uh, three weeks, we've been looking together, and uh, what we said every single week is that this is a really huge and really significant topic that uh, wisdom ultimately deals with how we answer some of the biggest questions that we all face in life. Questions like, what kind of world do we actually live in? Like, like what is this world actually like? And what does it mean to live well within that world? And how can you make good decisions? And then really where we're going to wrap things up today is focusing on this last uh, big question in some ways. It's what do you do when life doesn't go according to plan? What do you do with those difficult moments that don't seem to fit in the midst of an otherwise ordered and principled world? And so we're especially gonna focus on that as we wrap things up today. But what we've said is the reality is whether you've ever put intentional thought into it or not, all of us answer those big questions somehow, right? All of us let somebody or something speak into how we think the world is actually ordered and structured and and how we live and what we think the good life really looks like. And so we've said that sometimes uh, those messages come to us just kind of culturally, whether it's through social media or some other kind of advertising or just what your friends say. Like we pick up this sense of what life ought to look like. Uh, For others of us, maybe we picked it up from our parents. They modeled life in a certain way. And so you either said, man, I wanna be just like mom and dad or I wanna be nothing like mom and dad, right? But, but either way, parents uh, can certainly influence along the way. Uh, sometimes, especially again, for where we're going today, sometimes we draw our conclusions about what the world is like and about what life is really like based on bad assumptions that we make in the middle of difficult circumstances. I mean, if you've ever been in a tough spot, you know it's easy to convince yourself that maybe the world is just a a difficult place and things are never gonna go your way. And and you can kinda, at least if you're like me, find yourself wallowing in kind of that self-pity or this really negative outlook. And if you're in a season like that today, I mean, I hope today is gonna be really helpful for you. All of us face seasons like that, unfortunately, at some point in life, but I just encourage you, again, to lean in and uh, to remember that maybe some of those things that you're feeling while they're real and while they're important, they may not be uh, the clearest version of what life is really all about. But either way, uh, all of us somehow answer these questions about what life is really all about and what this world is really like. But what we're doing through this series is not just like cherry picking the best advice we find from whatever source that's out there, uh, but rather we're looking specifically on three books that are found uh, right around the middle of the Bible. Uh, They're actually ancient Hebrew wisdom that has been collected and is known as wisdom literature. And wisdom literature, uh, it speaks to an answer to some of those big questions as well. But what's unique, uh, there's a lot of things actually that are unique about uh, these three texts that we're looking at. But if you notice the little tagline up here, it says three perspectives on living well, because uh, what we believe about the scriptures is that you really need all three of these perspectives to get a big picture of what God's wisdom really looks like. If you just like pick one book and you're like, that's my book, you'll get a piece of the puzzle But these three books that we're looking at kind of exist in tension together, and that actually makes them all that much more richer. But the three books that we've been looking at together throughout this series are the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and then today we're going to wrap things up by looking at the book of Job. And what we've said about these documents in the middle of the Bible is that they are unified by a unique set of features and themes and, and ideas in all of them. They're actually unique Uh, because they speak from a different perspective 
If you read through the rest of the Bible, especially if you start at the Old Testament, uh, you'll hear a lot about Moses and Mount Sinai and the temple and and priests and worshiping God. And and there's like a few elements of that, but really, uh, although these three texts find themselves in the middle of that story, they do very little in their actual content to move that story forward. Instead, they have this different perspective where they kind of zoom out and they look at like general principles of how life works uh, in our world. And, and so they are kind of from this removed perspective. They also speak from a different authority. Um, each of the texts, if you read through scripture, like most of the Old Testament, uh, whether it's a prophet or a priest or somebody representing God, they show up and they say, hey, this is what God says. Or, or, like thus says the Lord or thou shalt or thou shalt not. You've probably heard all of those. And, and most of the New Testament, it's all about Jesus, right? And so people who are following Jesus are saying, this is what it looks like to do what Jesus said. In these wisdom books, this wisdom literature, it's actually uh, kind of this weird snapshot of human experience. Like the book of Proverbs uh, is wisdom passed down from a father to a son, and it's spread through like human experience over generations. And Ecclesiastes is this uh, perspective of this uh, teacher who has learned a thing or two about life, and Job is this story, but it's all very kind of earthy and very human. And then God, in his wisdom, took those human words and that human experience and elevated it to God's word for us today, which is a really unique thing. But what we said through the series as well is that we can actually imagine each of these texts with their own unique voice too. As we look at these three different perspectives, uh, Proverbs, where we started, is the voice of a brilliant young teacher. She has experienced or at least learned a lot about life and the way that our world works, whether it's uh, stuff related to work or money or relationships or sex or parenting or whatever it may be. If you experience it in life, uh, this brilliant young teacher most likely has something to say. We said that the teacher is like that friend with the very specific knowledge that you need to have around at that very specific moment to offer you some health. That's Proverbs. Uh, Ecclesiastes is the voice of the sharp middle-aged critic. A guy who's been around, right? He's seen some stuff. And, and he kind of offers this contrast to Proverbs because Ecclesiastes comes along and says, like, look, I understand that there's, like, principles and structure and wisdom and things that you can learn, but sometimes it doesn't always work that way. And, and what do you do with that? It's this tension-filled critique uh, that shows up. And then today, where we're going to look uh, is the voice of Job, which Job speaks from the voice of a weathered old man who, again, has been through some things in life and offers a perspective and really a question about where God is at in the midst of those kinds of moments. So I'm going to give you a rapid-fire recap from where we've been uh, the past two weeks before we jump into Job. Uh, We started out by listening to the voice of Proverbs, that brilliant young teacher. And Proverbs has this perspective on our world that says there is an invisible force that influences and shapes the way that everything works out in our world. It's kind of this like sense of order or a principle almost like gravity that just is whether or not you can see it or whether or not you can really describe it. And this force uh, in Hebrew, it's called chokmah, which I made you all say, and if you want to say it again, you're welcome to because it's kind of fun, right? It's just right there in the throat, and then you add ma at the end. But uh, chokmah is not just fun to say, but it's important to understand because chokmah uh, in Hebrew is the word that we translate as wisdom. But wisdom uh, in the Hebrew mindset, it's not just like a system that you can hack into and figure out. It's not just about being really skilled or figuring out those life hacks, uh, but rather chokmah is actually an attribute of God's character. It's this thing that's true of who God is and how God is, and it's woven into the fabric of how God created everything. And essentially chokmah is at play in how everything works out in our world. So what we said on week one is that wisdom matters and that wisdom is actually found in our relationship with God. 
Uh, Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord or reverence of God is the beginning of wisdom. That as you draw close to God, it's that much easier to get a right perspective on what God thinks is good and what God thinks is not good. So wisdom's found in our relationship with God, but it's also found in the counsel of others. Uh, I issued a challenge for maybe those who are a little more experienced and more seasoned to reach out to some younger people uh, in the church or in the community to offer your perspective, to offer your wisdom because we're better for it and vice versa for those who are younger and maybe just kind of getting started uh, to have the humility to accept the wisdom of others who have been there before. But the idea is, is that wisdom as it's presented to us in Proverbs, it's this beautiful idea of how life can work, where everything is kind of black and white and nice and neat and orderly. It's this clean worldview, which basically says if you're wise and if you fear the Lord, things are generally going to work well for you, uh, that God is fair and that the righteous are rewarded and that the unrighteous are punished and that people basically get what they deserve. Uh, I have a hat, which is probably not super pastoral of me. I almost wore it today partially because playing drums makes me sweaty, but also because uh, it kind of feels like Proverbs. I, it's got a little patch on it that says, have the day you deserve, <laughs> which again, isn't like the most Jesus-y thing you can tell somebody, but it's kind of in line with Proverbs, right? Like good people get good things, bad people get bad things. That's kind of the mindset of Proverbs. Uh, last week, we went on to Ecclesiastes and we dealt with the tension that although Proverbs is nice and neat and orderly and makes sense, life doesn't always work out that way. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes highlights that there's this like glitch in the system where sometimes people are righteous, sometimes people do the right thing and they don't get rewarded. Or sometimes people do the wrong thing and they get rewarded anyway. They don't actually get in trouble. Sometimes things happen in life that, that we can't really explain, that doesn't make sense, that doesn't seem like it fits in a good orderly world. And so Ecclesiastes has a word for that glitch and it's a little more Hebrew, it's the word havel, uh, which sometimes gets translated as meaningless or as vanity, but a more literal translation of that word is the idea of smoke or vapor. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes basically says that much of life is like trying to grab smoke. You can see it, like it's real, it's there, but when you try and get a hold of it, next thing you know, it's gone. It, it just moves on. And so it was kind of a depressing way to celebrate Father's Day together as we talked about uh, this critical perspective from the teacher in Ecclesiastes. Uh, there's another English word that could be used to explain this idea of Havel, and it's the idea of absurdity. Uh, the teacher basically just goes on and says, it's absurd, isn't it, that the world is supposed to work this certain way, but sometimes it doesn't? And then the teacher kind of explains that even farther through the absurdity of the march of time that we're like all just born into time and time's just moving past us and there's nothing we can do to stop it. It's just life's here and then next thing you know, it's not, which is another thing the teacher called absurd, that all of us have a finish line, right? That, that mortality is a real thing and that uh, after a few generations, our stuff gets passed on to other people. Hopefully our memory lasts for a little while, but eventually even that fades and it just seems so absurd. And on top of that, he mentioned that the world is really unpredictable that there's this kind of randomness that seems to happen in life. It's like it's all just a game of Plinko and you just see wherever it all lands at the end of the day. And, and, and so the teacher like offers this perspective and it feels really bleak, right? It feels kind of like, wow, somebody get this guy some help. Like this is really depressing. But in the end, the teacher looks at all of that absurdity, acknowledges this glitch in the system that all of us have probably experienced one way or another. And yet the teacher draws a conclusion at the end that we should still live in wisdom that we should still live in wisdom, that even though there is exceptions to the rule, generally it's still a good thing to fear the Lord and, and to walk wisely. But he also offers this perspective that says we should live in the present, 
that we shouldn't be so consumed with all the things that we want to control because we actually don't control that much. So instead, we should enjoy life while we have it, the good and the bad. It's all from God, and it all should be embraced. So today, we're going to continue the conversation. We're going to wrap up these three perspectives on wisdom by listening uh, to the final voice, which is the voice of Job, the weathered old man. And whenever I think of uh, this character, it's almost like an archetype to me, like one of those characters that shows up in all kinds of different stories. Uh, Here's a couple examples that I thought of. You got to get Mr. Miyagi in there, right? The sage who's offering all of the wisdom, young grasshopper. Uh, Gandalf, right? Like, it doesn't get any more wise than wise old Gandalf the Grey who shows up, or Gandalf the White, if you want. Sorry for the spoiler from a long time ago. Uh, (laughs) Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? The mentor who shows up. I had to get some Star Wars in there. And then Morgan Freeman's in there because he was the voice of God one time, right? And just like everything he does, I feel like feels wise because of that booming voice. That's why he narrates all the things. But uh, it's this picture of uh, this guy who's been through it and has a unique perspective on life because of it. And just like all the other texts we've looked at, if you look at the book of Job, it's unique in the midst of scripture. It has some attributes about it that no other book does. Uh, And one of the biggest things, (laughs) unlike Proverbs, which I said is 31 chapters, and a lot of it's just like little one-liners that are really easy to digest, or Ecclesiastes, which is only 12 chapters and pretty easy to read through, uh, Job is longer. It's not that much longer than Proverbs in terms of the number of chapters, but the language that's used and the way that they talk, it just feels like, especially in the middle section, the book just goes on and on and on because there's like this little introduction at the beginning that sets the scene. There's a conclusion at the end and in the middle, it's Job and his friends just talking and like just trying to figure it out. And there's something unique uh, in the actual Hebrew in Job, and this is just free and fun. I mean, it doesn't necessarily change how we read the text, but uh, in the middle section of Job, as the friends and Job are talking back and forth, there are all sorts of Hebrew words that are used that are not used anywhere else in scripture. In fact, there are very few other ancient documents that use these same Hebrew words, which can make it really difficult for us to translate them because typically the way ancient languages are translated is you kind of do this comparison thing across different texts and try and draw out the meaning. Uh, But in the midst of this text, it's almost like uh, Job was written to be this high art Like, you know when somebody's talking and they just start using big words for no apparent reason? Uh, That's kind of what Job is in the middle. Like, it's artsy for artsiness's sake at times. They're just having this big conversation about the nature of God and his character. But it uses all these fancy Hebrew words along the way. And, And basically, Job is this philosophical debate wrapped around a story. And there's no other book like this uh, throughout scripture. There are some later uh, texts that show up, like through some of the Greek philosophers and and Roman philosophers who would do this. They would tell stories to illustrate a philosophical point or philosophical tension. Sometimes the Babylonians, who were very near uh, to the ancient Israelites, they spoke in this way. But there's no other example in scripture where there's a story that's not just like history or not just meant to move things forward, but it actually illustrates a philosophical tension. And so, like I said, there's the intro chapters that set the scene. There's a conclusion that kind of wraps things up. And in the middle, there's this great debate. And a lot of people, like if you've ever heard anything about Job, a lot of people think Job is a book about suffering. That Job is a book about why do bad things happen to good people? Because that's essentially Job's story. Some bad things happen to an otherwise good man. And while that's the context of the story, Job never actually answers the question, why do bad things happen to good people? In fact, Job doesn't necessarily explain a whole lot about suffering itself, but the actual focus and the debate that's in the midst of Job centers on the character and the nature of God's morality and of God's justice. So again, just like set it in context with these other two perspectives we've looked at. Uh, Proverbs 
has this very clear cause and effect pattern, right? If you're good, good things happen. If you're bad, bad things happen. There's this moral law, justice governs the universe. And uh, generally it's this truth that can be affirmed by our human experience, right? It's why your parents taught you to do certain things and not do other things, because if you do them, it goes well for you. If you don't, it doesn't. And some of us learn that the hard way. I it's generally true, except Ecclesiastes shows up and says, not always, right? It's not always true. There's the glitch in the system and like, what do you do with that? Ecclesiastes pokes these holes in Proverbs and then in light of that, Job comes along and Job basically says like, okay, if Ecclesiastes is right, okay? Like if there is this order to the universe from Proverbs, but sometimes it doesn't always work out that way, what does that tell us about God and about his character? Or, or how can it be that God is just, that God is fair, that God orders the world well, if the world isn't always orderly, if sometimes things don't go the way that God says they ought to go. It kind of, Job begs the question, like what are the policies or principles through which God governs everything? So not a small task for us to jump into today, but uh, to get there, I'm gonna give you a little more Hebrew because I did it the last two weeks, so you might as well round it out with third. Uh, the question that we're looking at in Job is about God's justice and justice as it relates to God, it's kind of like wisdom. Justice isn't just this external thing that God does, but in the Hebrew mindset, justice is a part of God's character. And the Hebrew word for it is tezdek or tezdekah, uh, which often is translated as righteousness. If you read through scripture and you hear somebody is called righteous or God described as righteous, often it's this word, but really at the heart of it, it means justice in English because it's about things living in right, equitable relationship, right? Everything being balanced, everything being as it should be. And the assumption of Job, and the assumption of most of the Hebrew world, the assumption of most of us, honestly, is that the world works in this way. That, that the world ultimately, and that God ultimately is just, and that he wants to govern the world justly, that God's gonna be fair to us. And again, many of us share this assumption today, and that's why if you've ever gone through something difficult, like you're working hard, you're doing your thing, and then all of a sudden something just goes wrong, maybe your car breaks down and you're on the side of the road, that's why we all go, why God? right? Because we think that God shouldn't let that happen if we're being good and we're doing what we ought to do. It's why in the middle of some of those difficult moments, we ask, where are you, God? Because we think like the world is supposed to go a certain way. Life is supposed to happen according to a certain order. We kind of believe that God is like the great micromanager in the sky who looks at all of the activity in the world and wherever there's good things happening, he just pours out blessing and goodness. And wherever there's bad things happening, he pours out punishing and punishment and judgment. Like we think that that's God's job, right? God's just supposed to keep the scale balanced. And, and everywhere he sees good, he blesses it. Everywhere he sees bad, it should be punished. And the question of whether or not that's really how God operates is the question that's undergirding the entire story of Job. So we'll jump into the story together. Uh, the narrative goes like this. It starts by telling us that there was this guy named Job who is the most righteous, good man that you could ever imagine. Uh, Job 1.1 says this. There was once a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz, which we don't exactly know where Uz is. It's kind of this ancient concept, but Job lived somewhere and he was a good man. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and he stayed away from evil, which if you were paying attention two weeks ago, that's what Proverbs tells us to do, right? He feared the Lord, he stayed away from evil, he did what was right, he was blameless and a man of integrity. So we set the scene with this great man, Job, and then the text goes on immediately and we're like transported up into the heavenly control room, like at the situation room where there's the board table and God and all of his advisors are sitting around having a conversation and then really quickly, a tricky word shows up again in Hebrew that can lead us to some weird conclusions about this text because all of a sudden uh, it reads in English 
as if God is having a conversation with Satan. And that seems not good, right? It's kind of like, why are these two guys talking? He's supposed to be elsewhere. Uh, but the Hebrew word Satan is not a literal reference to like the little red guy with the pitchfork and the horns. It, it's not a reference to the devil or to Lucifer or anything like that. The Hebrew word Satan uh, literally just translates the opposer. So the idea is, is up in the like metaphorical heavenly control room, God and all of his advisors are sitting there and one of these advisors speaks up and offers an opposing view. Here's how the text says. It says, where, sorry, I jumped ahead. Where have you come from? The Lord asked uh, the Satan, which I'm gonna say Satan just so you don't start thinking devil, okay? So where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan and Satan answered the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth watching everything that's going on. And then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. So you can see God's like in proud papa mode, right? Like the Satan is like, hey, I've been looking at how things are going. He's like, have you seen Job? Job's my guy. Like Job's doing it. He's awesome. And so then Satan replies to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You've always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything that he does. Look at how rich he is. But reach out and take everything away that he has and he'll surely curse you to your face. The opposer, right? He's like, yeah, sure, he's great. But is he really that great? Or is it all just because you've been so good to him? So God says to the opposer, all right, you can test him. The Lord says to the Satan, do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. So it's brought before God this like tension-filled moment of like, hey, is Job really serving you because he loves you? Is he really that good? Or is he only good for self-interested motives, namely because God keeps blessing him because he's such a good guy? It basically raised the question, like, is it good policy for God in the way that he runs the world to bless good people and hook good people up with good things because they're good people or not? So to answer the question, God's like, okay, test him. Let's see. Let's find out. And God allows Job to undergo suffering as this kind of like test or examination of how committed he is or how loyal he is or what his piety looks like as it relates to God. And it's really a tragic story really quickly. Job uh, loses all of his stuff, all of his wealth. The text tells us early on that Job was a wealthy man. He had done well for himself because, again, he was living according to the principles of wisdom. He loses all of it. Uh, a barn falls down, and he loses all of his kids. They pass away tragically. And, and Job, I mean, he's crying. He's grieving. He's lost so much. And yet he refuses to curse God, at least at first. So he starts out and he's continuing to praise God. So there's this another encounter where the opposer goes back to God and says, hey, look, do you see what I did? And God's like, yeah, did you see what Job did? And he's like, okay, fine, but you wouldn't let me hurt him. So can I go back and hurt him now? And God's like, okay, we'll see how far this goes, right? Go, go hurt him, but don't kill him. So then the opposer shows back up and then Job is afflicted with some kind of mystery disease that causes him to have sores all over his body and he's just suffering and suffering and crying out. And to make matters even better, Job's wife like kind of turns on him and uh, offers that wonderful spouse advice. She walks up to him in his suffering and says, curse God and die. <laughs> it's like, wow. What a wonderful woman. So uh, Job is sitting there. And again, at the beginning, Job's not angry at God. Job's not blaming God. Job's still praising God in the midst of his suffering. But 
the text goes on and eventually tells us that Job is suffering so badly from this disease. Uh, he's taken a broken part of a clay jar and is like scratching at the stores, just trying to get whatever relief he possibly could in a moment. And eventually he cracks and he can't take it anymore. And he just like loses his temper at God. And I would say like Job moves from being like the Morgan Freeman, Obi-Wan kind of weathered old man to being like this kind of weathered old man. Like (laughs) Tom Hanks with Wilson, like talking to a volleyball, losing his mind. This guy is not in a good place. Okay, that's Job in this moment. He's like, it's too much. I can't handle it. And to be honest, I mean, I know we're laughing, but we've all been there, right? Or we've known somebody who's who's reached that point where it's like, life. It's, it's too much, right? And so like this is how bad it's getting for Job. In chapter 3, Job cries out uh, this lament to God and the lament to his friends. And he says, let the day of my birth be erased. And the night that I was conceived, let that day be turned to darkness. Let it be lost even to God on high and let no light shine on it. Like, this guy's not in a good place, right? He's saying it would be better if I just wasn't even here. Like I, I can't handle this anymore. And that like early little three chapter intro launches us into chapter three where Job has these three friends who show up. And they show up and they see Job in his suffering. They hear him crying out and they try to be helpful, right? So they start uh, telling Job, like they're convinced that Job must have done something wrong and that's why he's suffering. And it kicks off 34 chapters of really dense Hebrew poetry where they have this constant back and forth. One of his friends will say, Job, surely you did this wrong. And Job's like, no, I'm blameless. I didn't do anything wrong. So then the next friend comes up and says, well, surely you did that wrong, right? Like it's gotta be something you're doing, Job, that's causing all of this. And on and on and on it goes. And honestly, this portrait of Job's friends showing up, it's something that we can all fall into if we're not careful. Uh, when we're tempted to offer sip, simple answers to really complex questions, a lot of times it can be more hurtful than it is helpful, and that's certainly the case with Job. You see Job, who was so faithful and, and who was uh, still trying to praise God in the midst of his difficulty, as his friends keep pouring on seemingly good advice but really kind of clueless advice, Job just gets more and more angry and more and more frustrated, and on and on he goes. And it's a little bit of a sidebar, But unfortunately, I think a lot of Christians are kind of like Job's friends when we see people going through hard times because we show up and and we're so eager to help and and probably so used to like feeling like we're answer people, right? We're like, here's Jesus, he's the answer. Uh, That we show up and we try and help people make sense of senseless things. And sometimes in doing so, we cause so much more harm because we oversimplify. We gloss over the very real experience. We often cause more harm than good. And, And you can feel it if you read through Job. Like if you see the tension playing out, because as the reader, we know Job is a good man. We know God has said Job is a good man. He's blameless in my sight. He's not suffering for doing anything wrong, but it creates this tension for us as readers because we know Job is good and and we know he's suffering because God allowed it, but his friends keep drawing all these wrong conclusions about God's character and about Job's character, Job's righteousness. And, And so we know like the friends are wrong and Job is convinced that his friends are wrong, but again, you just see it playing out over 34 chapters where these friends accuse Job and Job's like, no, I'm innocent. And then they accuse him in a different way. He's like, no, I'm innocent. And, and so eventually, like I said, these conversations lead up to Job getting more and more angry and he reaches his Popeye moment and he can't stand it no more. And eventually he cries out to God and he starts accusing God basically of being a jerk <laughs> or of being unjust. He's like, look, I know I haven't done anything wrong. So why is this happening to me, God? And he cries out and demands that God explain himself. He cries out and he's like, God, answer me. 
right? Why am I going through this? And again, some of us, we've been in that moment before, right? We, we've cried out to God. We were just so hurt. We were caught in something so difficult. We're like, God, why? Right? Answer me. Why is this happening? What's amazing is in Job, God does. Okay, God hears Job crying out and say, answer me, explain yourself. And the end of the text, basically, is God starts to answer Job. He speaks up and he addresses Job. And it's really where the real meat and the real value of this perspective of this text shows up. Because it's the response of God to the issue of suffering and injustice to the world that reveals so much really about us as well as about God. And as sometimes is the case, God doesn't come out right and just explain everything to Job. God doesn't just give him like the three bullet points and be like, have a good day, right? Enjoy your Sunday, have a good nap, get back to work, any of that. I- instead, uh, what God does, so Job cries out to God. He says, God, why are you being unfair to me? Answer yourself, explain why I am where I am. And God shows up and he offers the most epic rant. I mean, there's some like really good rants throughout scripture, but this might be my favorite. Uh, God shows up and if you like seeing people, this is a little sick, of a desire, okay? But if you like seeing people being put in their place, you've got to read uh, chapter 38 and 39 of Job because God shows up. And I, I almost read you the whole thing, but it would take like seven minutes and we'd probably all just be like, wow, this is uncomfortable how much Eric likes this. But uh, in Job 30, I'm going to read you just the first 15 verses because you'll kind of get a flavor for what God is doing here. He shows up and the text says, then the Lord answered God from a whirlwind, which is a really cool thing. There's a storm that shows up and God starts speaking through the whirlwind. And he says, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. You can feel it, right? He's like charged up. Like, let's go, Job. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Right out of the gate, right? It's like, whoop, I just got put in my place, but he keeps going. And God says, who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb, as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness? For I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores, I said, this far and no farther will you come. Here, your proud waves must stop. So again, God's like, hey, remember I made the ocean and I keep it contained every single day. I decide how far the shore is gonna come in. He goes on, have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? As the light approaches, the earth takes shape like clay pressed beneath a seal. It's robed in brilliant colors. The light disturbs the wicked and stops the arm that's raised in violence. So you can see, like, there's three little snapshots. God's like, hey, where were you when I made everything, Job? Oh, and by the way, did you decide how far the ocean was going to go, or, or was that me? Oh, and every morning, do you make the sun come up? No? Oh, that's, that's me too? I do that? Okay. And, and, like, he just keeps going, and he, like, gets down to the level of, like, who made your ox that you just lost, like, show up, right? <laughs> who, who makes the crops grow? And, and he just goes on and on and on. Like, if you think that was a lot, you've got another chapter and a half of God just ranting and ranting and going off on Job about, like, hey, where were you, man? Like, wh- how big are you, little Job? In fact, there's a moment in the midst of this rant where God says to Job, hey, you want to run the world? Go for it. And if you do, everybody's going to die in like a matter of minutes. That, that's a summary, but that's basically what God says. He's like, you, you want my job? Have at it. 
It's not going to work out. And, and he just goes on and on and on. He talks about uh, these two sea creatures, which is kind of mysterious in there, but he talks about the Leviathan that uh, was kind of this imagery in Hebrew for chaos. God is saying, like, I even control the uncontrollable, right? Like, I'm even over chaos, and I allowed chaos to be in the midst of this world. And he goes on and on and on, basically saying, Job, you don't understand things like I do, right? And, and he hears Job. That's powerful, Right? God hears Job crying out, and he doesn't just like lightning bolt him right there. He answers him, but he answers him with this like kind of reframing where he's like, Job, remember who you are. Right? It's like the Mufasa moment from Lion King, like, but more powerful and a little angrier. Uh, like God shows up, and he's like, remember, you're, you're a human, and I'm God. Right? Remember, you weren't there. You don't organize all this stuff. You don't keep it going, and if you tried... You couldn't handle it. God's uh, illustrating and, and elevating to Job's awareness the r- incredible complexity of the world that we live in and the incredible complexity that every single day happens to make life happen in our world. And then the book concludes with Job going, oh. <laughs> and, and Job, basically, he repents to God. And he says, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, God. Like, I, I, did, I didn't mean to get so angry, and I was wrong about that. And, and he, he essentially humbles himself. He's like, you know what? You are God, and and I'm not, and and I don't know why things happen, and I need to embrace and understand that. And and this text could end there, because that's kind of the point in the lesson, but just to, like, sweeten the deal, uh, after Job repents and and says he's sorry, God comes back, and he just, like, hooks him up again. And it doesn't say, like, if God did this as a reward or if God just kind of randomly did this. Again, there's no real explanation, but everything that Job had lost in his suffering was restored to him multiple times over. And what I want you to see today is that this text, even though it bears Job's name, it's really not about Job. And it's really not about suffering or why bad things happen to good people. The question that's posed throughout this text is how and why does God order the world the way that he does? Uh, How and why does God really operate in our world and in our lives? And uh, there's one uh, scholar who I think helped laid this out really clearly uh, through using a triangle illustration And it looks like this. He basically says throughout Job, you've got these three things that are sitting in tension. And at the very top, you've got God's justice, right? This this question of is God wise and is God just? Does God rule fairly? Then you've got Job's righteousness, which we know, right? Job is a blameless man. And then there's the question of is there a fair order to the world? That question of Proverbs, right? Do the good people get good things and do the bad people get punished for being bad? And these three things exist in tension and you can see it play out in each person's response. Like Job's friends, uh, they believe in this fair order to the world. They believe in Proverbs. That's how the world works. And they believe that God is just. So their natural conclusion is Job must not be righteous. And that's why they spend all their time tearing their friend down and criticizing him and questioning him. Uh, for Job, Job knows he's righteous, right? He knows what he's done. And, and, and Job believes in Proverbs. He believes there's a fair order to the world. And that's why Job eventually gets so angry, he cries out. And he's like, God, are you even just? Are you even fair? For God, right? God knows that God is just. And God knows that Job is blameless. And so it calls into question, does the world really work according to this fair order? Is it really that black and white? And it really is, is it that simple? So the text basically puts that idea on trial. Does the world just systematically go where good people get good things and bad people get bad things? And the book's conclusion is basically this. It's that God rules the world personally. 
not systematically. In, in other words, God's hands aren't tied to where like everything that we call good, God has to reward, and everything that we call bad, God has to punish. Rather, it, it's, it's a little grayer than that. It's a little squishier than that. And that's why, I mean, there, again, there's no answer to why Job suffered exactly why he did. But God shows up and basically says, hey, I'm God. And I have a wisdom and a perspective that you don't have as a human, as a created thing. And Job is left with this choice to trust God or not. And that's maybe a little unsettling. It's hard for us to understand because we want answers and we want explanations. But the point is for us to be humble enough to understand that we're not God. And that means we won't understand everything that happens to us in our lives. We won't always have the clear explanation, but we can still have trust in God's character, in God's goodness. See, God's justice, the order that he brings to our lives and to our world, it looks less like a system of black and white cause and effect, and it looks more like wisdom itself. That, that God, again, he has that chokmah, right? He has that wisdom in his character, and justice is a part of who he is. So everything that he does, he does from that perspective that's higher than our perspective, that God's ways are higher than our ways. And so our job in the face of that is to humble ourselves and to worship God anyway in the midst of it. So again, fascinating conversation. Really, all three of these texts, right, they're kind of interesting, but it leaves us today like, so what do I do with that? Three things uh, really quickly as we wrap up that we can practically do in response to the wisdom of Job. Uh, one is a little bit of a sidebar, but I don't want to miss saying it again. The first thing you can do is don't be like Job's friends. I know I wrote, don't be Job's friends. That seems like we shouldn't be friends with Job. You can be friends with Job. But don't be like his friends were when you have people in your life who are going through something difficult. Right? Don't feel the pressure to be the answer person. Don't feel the pressure to explain senseless things. Uh, we talked about this earlier this year when we went through our bumper sticker theology series and we talked about the idea uh, that everything happens for a reason. Sometimes we offer that as a comfort. But man, you know what's so much more powerful, so much more comforting, and in my opinion, so much more Christ-like? It's when instead of offering answers to people who are suffering, instead of offering like one-liners and explanations, which we can do from a distance, it's when you get close to somebody who's suffering and you suffer with them. Right? You join them in solidarity. You walk with them through whatever they're going through. You don't try and explain it away. You just stay present with them in it and through it. So again, that's a quick one. But man, I mean, if you know somebody who's going through something right now and you're feeling that temptation to be like, I got to give them an answer. No, you don't. The, the very answer that they may need might be the gift of your presence, walking with them, checking in on them, right? Just blessing them with meals or a visit or whatever it may be. Show up for people and don't be like Job's friends, okay? Be better friends than that. That's thing number one we can do. But the bigger thing, the bigger point of this text is that really the way to get through some of the most inexplicable and difficult things in our life is to embrace our limited point of view. It's actually to embrace that we don't have all the answers, that we won't have an explanation for every single thing that we experience. And while on the surface that is so not satisfying to the way that we want life to work, it's actually the path to humility, which gives us the freedom to actually live well in the midst of an unpredictable and difficult world. I was thinking about the amazing rant that God goes on, and then I was thinking about some of the hopefully equally amazing rants I go on to my daughter uh, when she is like not doing what I want her to do or when she's being disobedient because she's four years old and uh, has every little bit of my attitude, and so we butt heads sometimes as she's trying to tell me the way that things should go, and I know the way that things should go, right, because I'm dad, and, and it's, it's like Job and God, right? I know I just called myself God, but 
to her, I'm okay with that right now. Like, it, it, we have these moments where we're butting heads, and like, she powers up. She's like, no, Dada, I want to do this. And one of my favorite things to do, which is actually very in line with what God does to Job, is I'll just say, like, hey, Eden, what's our mortgage payment? <laughs> and she's like, uh, I don't know. And I'm like, exactly, okay? <laughs> like, I pay for us all to be here, so until you're handling that one, you're going to do what I say. That's kind of what God does, right? God shows up, and he's like, Job, do you know how I get the sun to rise every morning? No? Okay. Then maybe let me be me and you be you, right? Embracing that limited perspective that we have, that limited power that we have. It's actually the pathway to freedom because for Eden, right? I want something good for her. I'm a good father who loves her and I want to develop things in her and I want her to succeed in life. And that's why I do a lot of the things that I do for her, right? Or at least ideally, that's why I do what I do for her. She doesn't always understand that. And it is so much like the way that our heavenly father interacts with us where he does things that sometimes we do not understand, often we don't like, often it seems upside down to us, right? How could God allow that to happen? And the answer is because we don't get it. <laughs> like we, we don't see the big picture, but we can still trust in the face of that, that God is good. And that's the third thing that we can do. We can trust God's rule no matter what. We can actually trust that God's character is what he says it is, that he's good, that he's wise, even when his wisdom doesn't look like wisdom to us. Right? Even when it doesn't make sense to us, whether we're in a great season or whether we're in a difficult season, we can still trust that God is in control and that God is good. And maybe one of the most important things to hold on to, especially like if you're here and you're in the midst of something difficult, one of the most important things to hold on to is this understanding that your story's not over wherever you're at right now. But, like, here's the thing. We all want answers. I do too. I'm talking about Job. I love Job. I love the perspective. I think the wisdom is found in it, but I want answers to the things that have happened and do happen in my life more than anybody. Okay, I want explanations for why certain things have happened, and sometimes, here's what I want you to know, sometimes the most human thing you can do, sometimes the most faithful thing that you can do is cry out to God in anger. It's to let heaven hear it, okay? Like, like that's what Job does. Job gets to that boiling point, and he lets it out, and guess what? God doesn't punish him for it. In fact, God answers him in the midst of it because God can handle wherever you're at in the midst of whatever you're facing. And so sometimes the most faithful thing that you can do is let that out and cry it out to God. But there is a wisdom that can sustain us beyond that moment that knows that sometimes there's a point where even the questions don't satisfy us, right? Where, where even if we got the answer, it, it wouldn't necessarily satisfy us. And there's this wisdom that learns that our stories aren't over in that moment, that your story in the midst of whatever you're facing right now, it is not over. And what you're going through does not have the last word. It doesn't have to have the last word. And, and here's what's true of the difficult things I've gone through and the difficult things that you may be going through right now. It's that you don't know what else is going on. Right? You don't know what else God is up to. You don't know what else is happening in this world. You don't know what you don't know. And so the perspective that we're offered from Job is this perspective of humility that embraces that, that's okay with that. This perspective that says, you know what, I'm gonna trust that God is still good, even in the midst of difficulty, and I'm gonna choose to believe that my story isn't over yet, that God is still working, that there's still another chapter yet to be written. So that's Job, and this overview, right? These three perspectives, they're so important for us to understand if we wanna live well and if we wanna understand how the world really is, but we've got to hold all three of them in tension together. That there is wisdom in the world, as Proverbs says, 
that, that there is a good and orderly way that we can live and we should line up with wisdom any chance that we can get, but at the same time, we have to hold it all open-handed because it doesn't always work out that way. But even when it doesn't work out that way, God is still good and God is still working for our good and even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. So let me pray for you as we wrap up. God, um, I just specifically, right out of the gate, want to pray for anybody who's here today and who's going through something difficult or who has gone through something difficult and they're still feeling the effects of that. Um, I pray that you'd meet them right where they're at and that this would be an encouraging uh, message that they hear today, that it would be uh, hopefully helpful, hopefully freeing to them and and really to all of us as all of us at some point will navigate the difficulties of life. God, I want to thank you that you did order this world with wisdom at its core that there is a way that we can live that lines up with how you designed things to work. God, I pray that all of us would have uh, the sensibility to find what that is for us. God, I pray uh, for those of us who are in moments where life doesn't make sense, that we would have the courage to live open-handed anyway, that we would be present in the moment and receive life as it is as a gift, even in the difficult moments. And God, again, that we would be humble enough to understand that we don't understand, that we would understand that, that you're in charge, that you're bigger than us, that you see and do things that we could never even fathom. And in light of that, help us to trust you. Help us to trust your character and help us to walk wisely with you through all of our days. We pray and we ask all of that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.